Hello, everyone. I'm Esther Pan Sloan, Head of Partnerships, Policy and Communications at the United Nations Capital Development Fund. Welcome to Season 2 of Capital Musings, UNCDF's podcast, where we are focusing on fresh ideas and new innovations that serve our mandate to make finance work for the poor in the world's least developed countries. You can find our Capital Musings podcast on Apple, Spotify, or our website, www.uncdf.org. Today, we're excited to be speaking with Chris Walker, Social Innovations Director at Mercy Corps. Chris, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me on, Esther. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Please tell us about yourself, Chris. Where did you grow up? What did you study? And what was the path that led you to Mercy Corps? I grew up in the United States, uh, in St. Louis, Missouri, in the middle of the country, and moved to the East Coast to attend university, and I've been on the East Coast or living overseas ever since. So it's a long and winding path to where we ended up today, and I'm certainly doing something that I never expected to be doing when I was a child. In fact, it was a field that didn't really exist when I was younger. In college, I was really interested in pursuing a career in something related to government, social service, impact broadly. And I, I remember going to the Career Center my senior year of college, looking for opportunities. And in the flood of solicitations from investment banks and consulting firms and corporations, there is very little out there that related to having uh, a career in the broad field of impact. I did find one program that was a two-year program for college graduates to work in the U.S. government. So I applied for that. It was the most interesting that I had seen and the one more closely related to my own interest. And it was to work at the U.S. Department of Energy in a legal office. And I thought that was a good opportunity to learn both about policy and about careers in the law, which was something I was considering but wasn't sure if law school was the thing for me. So I spent two years in the U.S. government and, and realized through that that my interests and my personality were better suited to a career in policy than in law. I liked the variety of types of work and of skills and of knowledge that policy professionals need, and I was attracted to the offerings of policy schools to study quantitative analysis, economics, policy, big social and environmental issues. So I ended up going to get my master's in policy and I had a real interest in pursuing a career in international environmental issues. But when I, I think what, what happens to most people, I entered graduate school, took some of my required courses my first semester, and found the field of international development to be both relevant to environmental issues and just an intellectually fascinating field that drew on so many different disciplines and skill sets. So I wound up specializing in economic development and in an international setting and was still interested in doing something in the public sector. So following graduate school, I returned to the U.S. government, but this time around at the U.S. State Department, their Economic Bureau, followed by the U.S. Treasury Department working in their International Affairs Division. And both agencies have a real focus on global finance, global economic, macroeconomic policy in the developing world on issues like debt reduction, debt relief, how to encourage better policies that will improve healthcare, improve educational outcomes, enhance economic growth opportunities. And it was fascinating work from an intellectual standpoint. I had amazing colleagues, very dedicated civil servants, people who were incredibly bright and knew a huge amount. So 
for me, it was almost like a second graduate program. The ability to learn from so many amazing people and to really tackle some incredible issues. And after a while in the government, I, I, I remained really fascinated with this question of how to enhance economic development and how to tackle some of the world's biggest challenges through economics and finance. And I started to get this itch to build something, to create something, to develop new solutions. And I was fortunate during my time in the government to be involved in some more innovative ways in which we could deploy public finance for social and environmental impact. I mentioned that both the Treasury and the State Department were focused on debt renegotiation, debt relief. And I also got involved through that in debt for nature swaps. How do we exchange debt for forest conservation, for instance? I was involved in some of the early work to set up uh, a government agency called the Millennium Challenge Corporation, which is trying to take a more innovative approach to how the U.S. provides foreign assistance. And through all of this, I was becoming more and more intrigued with initiatives outside of the government that were also trying to deploy financial tools and economic tools in ways that would achieve social or environmental impact. And I, I remember the day I was sitting, I moved from the Treasury to the Millennium Challenge Corporation, and I had received an email from a contact saying, look, we've got this amazing fellow graduating from university. She has an offer from a place called Acumen Fund, but she's really interested as well in the Millennium Challenge Corporation. Do you have any opportunities for her? She needs to make a decision in the next few days. Of course, I scrambled to see what we could do at MCC to at least set up an interview. At the same time, I was wondering, well, who's this competitor of ours? But this fellow is very interested in us, but also this organization I've never heard of called Acumen Fund. What are they? What do they do? So I looked them up, and of course, Acumen Fund was one of the very early innovators in the field of impact investing and supporting social entrepreneurs by taking this venture capital approach but applying it for social and environmental impact. And I became really interested in what they were doing. And this was, again, this was very early days, the early 2000s, and I'd say the, the growth and professionalization of the impact investment field. And carving out of a unique field to say, look, now some of this investing for impact has been going on for quite some time, but let's put a label around it. Let's build practices around this. Let's encourage people to enter this as a profession. So I started looking at that and followed Acumen, I'd say for a year or two. And they started while I was following them to offer a fellowship program where folks could join Acumen for one year, get some training on this social venture capital approach, and then work for a social enterprise that Acumen had invested in. So I had the opportunity to go work for one of Acumen's investees, a private ambulance company based in Mumbai, India. So I found myself leaving a government job where I was doing really interesting analytical work on policy approaches and where people would return my phone calls to go work for a startup social enterprise where I really had to hustle and market the equivalent of 911 services on the ground in one of the world's biggest cities. And it was this incredibly challenging, but incredibly rewarding experience. And I remember finishing the year just feeling so satisfied at a deep level with the work that, that I was had the real privilege of being involved in and working for some incredible entrepreneurs who had a clear vision for what they wanted to do to solve a big problem in India and were taking a more market-based approach to doing it. And after that, I just really wanted to follow up and, and pursue some form of career or opportunity 
in the broad fields of social entrepreneurship and impact investing. And it, it took a while for me to find something in that field, but I ended up taking an opportunity at a nonprofit in Geneva, Switzerland called the Global Alliance for Improved Nutrition, which was starting up an innovative finance function. I think many other NGOs have since followed the same path. The function was really to look at how the organization could catalyze or leverage private capital to address malnutrition globally. So you can see very similar to the approach other organizations are taking around impact investing practices or blended finance approaches. These challenges that nonprofits and civil society organizations and even governments are trying to address are so large and require so much capital that public resources alone aren't going to be sufficient. The Global Alliance for Improved Nutrition, among others, was looking at ways in which they could tap into these vast pools of private capital and channel it into activities that could generate impact. And that set me on my path of working in the nonprofit sector and looking at these more innovative financing ways to address development challenges. And that's what ultimately led me to my current job here at Mercy Corps. Thanks, Chris, for that terrific guide through essentially the growth of the impact investment field. I feel like your experience really touches every corner of it. I wonder, since you were there at the beginning of the MCC, if you could Give us a sense of how you think it's performing. It was a signature initiative of the George W. Bush administration, and our clients and partners in Africa really remember the MCC as a key achievement of the Bush administration. And it does seem that often when a new administration comes in in different countries, there is a new approach to development, and there's a sense that this whole field needs to be innovated and disrupted. So I wonder what your grade or assessment would be of how the MCC has performed since it was started. I think the MCC just passed its 15 year anniversary. So it's been around now for, for quite some time. I would say the origins of this initiative, there were a lot of intellectual parents of the Millennium Challenge Corporation's approach. And what was interesting about it, it was built on a lot of academic research on what works in the field of international development and how foreign assistance can be made more effective. And so one of the core foundations of the MCC's approach was that the research findings around how foreign assistance is more effective in countries that have good policy environments in place. So part of MCC's approach has been how to encourage governments to make policy reforms that will be good for social development, economic development, and environmental issues. And then providing countries with large chunks of funding that they can use to address their own priorities. So really encouraging government ownership. And I think that kind of approach that was based on research, that was based on lessons learned by the international development community, transcends politics in a way. It's taking a more technocratic approach to what should be hopefully a more effective use of government funds to generate real outcomes. And then taking a real focused approach on assessing the potential for impact. And while I think the early vision of the MCC was to have a much larger agency in terms of funding to deploy, that core approach has persisted around the importance of having good policies in place 
and the importance of providing funding in ways that meet government's priorities as opposed to donors' priorities. So I haven't been as close to MCC over the past few years to really give you a clear assessment of how it's doing now. But I think that the fact that it has persisted for, across multiple administrations is due to the fact that it really was based on lessons learned by practitioners and a more creative and innovative approach about how to deploy funding in ways that could be more effective and then measuring its effectiveness. Thanks, Chris. I know among the member states that we discuss, those two aspects of country ownership and also the multi-year funding are very much appreciated, as well as the scope of the funding, because it really gives governments a chance to get a big chunk of money apply it over multiple years and then try to achieve some of their goals with it. It's interesting that Acumen was one of the first institutions, as you mentioned, in impact investing, but also that they were taking donations and investing them with kind of a venture capital focus. So what is your sense of how that approach works, which I, I know is the approach that you have now at Mercy Corps as well? Happy to give you my view. And I, I should say I'm going to be a little bit biased because, as you mentioned, at Mercy Corps, we have our own impact investment fund. We've learned a lot from Acumen in terms of how we modeled it and how we practice impact investing. And we take a similar approach to Acumen. So that's going to flavor my response. But really the reason why we use grant money to then invest as opposed to raising money from investors who want their capital back with some return is that we recognize that there is a big gap in capital for very early stage social enterprises operating in emerging markets. And many of these social entrepreneurs are trying to carve out new sectors and new approaches. So from an investment standpoint, it can seem to be fairly risky or there's a perception of higher risk. Higher risk because these enterprises are operating in emerging markets. Higher risk because they're much earlier stage. Higher risk because they're sometimes operating in new sectors. But I would add that this is often a perception Right. And, and once you start digging into the business models, the country context, and you bring some knowledge around what works and what doesn't in those contexts, the risk comes down. But still, from an investment standpoint, making very small investments in early stage enterprises is hard to do because of the transaction costs of doing small deals. And so there just remains this gap in access to financing for a lot of promising enterprises. And so we felt that one way to address this is to utilize grant money where we are not, when we make an investment, under pressure to sell our stake in a company in the near term. We know it takes longer for some of these enterprises to grow and to deliver impact, and we can stay in that investment for a longer time period than many profit-oriented investors can do. And utilizing grant money allows us to take a higher level of risk than other investors can take on. And so our mission has been to fill that early stage capital gap for social enterprises. And we think it's a very good and catalytic use of grant funding. And I think that's very similar to, to Acumen's approach as well, that there are investments that commercial investors aren't touching, but that could really be successful businesses if you are patient enough and provide the right type of support. And if you're willing to take a chance on them and where Commercial investors aren't willing to tread. Organizations that have some access to grant money can and really make a difference. That's great to hear, Chris. That's, of course, UNCDF's approach as well. And the idea that you can use 
donations at this early stage, risky, where commercial actors wouldn't go to build markets, to actually make pipelines of investable businesses more attractive to the commercial money that is out there. I think we fully agree that's a very critical and underserved space. So your first fund that you raised with Mercy Corps was, I believe, $2 million in 2015. Was it difficult to raise the grant money? And then what has been the response of the donors who gave you that funding now that there's a track record of what you did with their donation? Let me give you a little bit of the origin story of our approach at Mercy Corps, because when we initially raised funding, it was not to be an investor in social enterprises outside of Mercy Corps. Rather, we had a long track record history as an organization of having our own staff in country be very entrepreneurial. They're the closest to the problems that we're trying to solve. And many of our staff would have very innovative, market-oriented business ideas to set up social enterprise approaches to solve problems. And we had been helping them out in a more ad hoc way. And so the initial thinking was, how can we be more systematic about cultivating these really entrepreneurial ideas that our staff have and then providing them with the support that they need to develop those ideas into what could become businesses that could spin out of Mercy Corps and be run independently of our organization. And so we had initially raised grant money from various donors to Mercy Corps, individual donors, as opposed to institutions. So people who donated to Mercy Corps in the past, some board members, friends of board members, people in the broader Mercy Corps network to start doing that work. And what we found is after a year or two that our staff are coming up with these amazing ideas, really viable business ideas, but there were a lot of constraints to providing support to them to help turn those ideas into businesses and spin them out of the organization. I won't go into all the details. One obvious constraint is to move from the idea into a scale business that has impact at the scale that we would like to see takes a very long time. And we're also starting to wonder, why are we tying our hands in a way to only supporting our staff when we know that there are a lot of social entrepreneurs out there building similar businesses that are further along, that are dedicated and have dedicated their careers to doing this, but also need a very similar sort of systematic support, capital plus other support. Why shouldn't we just be investing in them? And so we changed our approach. We still had some money left over from our initial approach, and we decided instead to use that to invest equity or convertible debt into very early stage social enterprises outside of Mercy Corps but that we're doing work that aligns with our mission, our humanitarian and economic development mission. And so we started doing that. And as we just started to try to do deals, say, okay, we don't have experience investing externally as an organization. Let's try this because we've been doing it internally. Let's make a few investments, see how it goes. Do we really bring value to these social enterprises? And we started making some investments and discovering that there is actually you know, quite a lot of demand, not just for our capital, but for our institutional support. Many entrepreneurs start by raising money from individuals, from angel investors, former business people, entrepreneurs, others who want to put some of their own money towards supporting entrepreneurs to grow. But they need at some point to tap into larger pools of capital. And so we're, we're often coming in as the first institution investing in these enterprises. And that, in many ways, gave them credibility. But many of these entrepreneurs also saw a lot of value 
for, from tapping into Mercy Corps' broader network. We work a lot with various corporations. We have a presence on the ground in over 40 countries. We have almost 6,000 staff, almost all of whom grew up and live in the countries in which we work. So they have a huge and deep understanding of the local contexts. They're technical experts in their fields. These networks and people and technical expertise are really valuable to entrepreneurs. So we had entrepreneurs approaching us saying, your capital is great, but we also want this from Mercy Corps. So we started to get some traction in investing that way. And we still had a need for more money. We saw more and more deals that we could do, but we were constrained by capital. So we continued to raise money from high net worth individuals and, and other individual donors who liked our approach. And I'd say after about... I think it was about three years in, we got our first grant from an institution, a private foundation that supported our post-investment support for businesses that we'd invested into. And since then, we've raised several more grants from institutional donors to scale up our work. And so you asked, what was the interest of these donors and what we were doing? I think everybody has a slightly different interest, but I think one of the core things is that our mission as a nonprofit is to help communities solve their own problems. And when you're working with communities, you're often working with local government agencies, you're working with civil society organizations, community groups, but entrepreneurs are also a key part of the, the equation. Entrepreneurs are often embedded in their own communities. They understand the problems their communities face incredibly well, and they're driven to develop a solution to those problems. And they're trying to deliver that solution through a business approach. So we wanted a way to support entrepreneurs. And I think that approach appeals to, to some of our donors, that there was a missing piece there. How can we provide more structured support to entrepreneurs to achieve Mercy Corps' mission? And the other piece of it is the leverage that you can get. We always co-invest, so we're not providing all the capital that a business needs. We're investing alongside other investors. And often our capital can be very catalytic. As I mentioned, that we're often the first institution coming in and investing in a business. That sends a signal to other institutions that can invest at an early stage that maybe this is a business worth looking at and considering investing in. And then the support that we provide after we invest is often tailored around helping those entrepreneurs raise more capital from other investors. So there is this catalytic nature that a small investment from our end can help an entrepreneur bring in a lot more capital, but also really create a, a very clear focus on delivering impact. And so that leveraged approach, I think, is also appealing to donors. Thanks so much, Chris. I didn't actually realize that your fund started as an internal accelerator yep. for your own staff. That's fantastic. And we, like entrepreneurs, see if things weren't going in the direction we wanted, we need to pivot and follow the lead of the market. I wonder if you can tell us for your fund, what's your average ticket size? Because these are small enterprises in tough markets. If you're providing follow-on finance, and then with the investments that you've already made, will you provide multiple rounds of finance or is your initial catalytic participation enough to then move the company along to commercial sources of finance after you? Great questions. For the first four to five years, we only invested at the seed or very early stage of companies. So what that meant is our ticket size, the amount of money that we would put into a, a venture ranged from $50,000 up to about $250,000. Most of our investments were around $100,000 to $150,000.
And as I mentioned, we always invest alongside other investors. So often entrepreneurs were raising anywhere from $300,000 to $2 million. And we were a piece of that amount of capital that they were raising. And we felt that our biggest value was investing at that early stage. And also because we were raising grant money from individuals, we didn't have a huge amount of money to deploy. So we thought it was much more valuable to spread that out amongst many early stage ventures and providing follow-on financing to companies in our portfolio. Instead, we really focused on providing tailored post-investment support with a goal of getting those companies in our portfolio to a point where they could raise more capital in subsequent rounds. So I think to date, the companies in our portfolio have raised something like, I believe it's now over $90 million in follow-on capital compared to the few million that we put into them. So we can look at how catalytic that money has been. Last year, we did our first sort of follow-on investments. In some cases, they were in what, what's called a bridge round. Many of the ventures in our portfolio, like many ventures globally, suffered during the pandemic. They had a huge amount of promise. And they just needed to see through that, that tough stretch. And they were raising additional capital to give them the time to see their way through the pandemic. And we participated in some of those rounds. So not huge amounts of capital, but we were able to do that. We're now able to do slightly larger ticket sizes as well in some ventures. We've always focused on a few areas of investing. One is agriculture, another is financial inclusion. We've done a lot of investments in the combination of agricultural finance. We've also invested in youth employment opportunities and in last mile distribution of socially beneficial goods and services. We have raised some grant money to really focus on financial technology and financial and techno technological approaches to financial inclusion. And that's enabled us to do some larger ticket sizes in that sector. And the other theme that we're now focused on is a cross-cutting theme that many of the ventures that we've invested in have helped build resilience to climate change. And we see a lot more opportunities to invest in startups that have solutions to climate adaptation. And we are looking at ways in which we can increase our ticket size and do follow-on investing in ventures like that into the future. And you've mentioned that you do equity stakes. What do you do with the equity? Have you exited any equity investments yet? And is your vehicle meant to be a revolving vehicle that goes on forever? Because I imagine your donors don't need their money back at any point. So correct for first, your, your second question, it, it is a revolving vehicle. So again, we are recipients, fortunate recipients of grant money from donors who support our approach. And when we get an exit a return on our investments, our intention is to recirculate that capital. So reinvest it in new companies and just cover the costs of what we're trying to do. So you'd also ask what we do with our equity stakes in these companies. First, I would just make a point that we invest equity because we feel that for ventures that have visions of scaling and reaching potentially millions of consumers or expanding across national borders, that equity is a very helpful form of capital at an early stage. So we do that rather than debt. Equity is also our, more of our skill set. But we intend to stay as an investor in these companies as long as we can add value to their social mission. And at the right time, we are looking to exit so that we can utilize that capital in another business. So to date, we've had two successful financial exits from startups in our portfolio. We had an option for a, a third exit that we passed on because we felt we could still 
contribute a lot of value to that venture, uh, but we would look to exit at the right time in the future. And so with those exits, we plowed that money back into our investments and our operations. And you've talked about your plans to scale. Is the goal to get the investment fund in all 40 countries where Mercy Corps operates? That is not the goal at this point. As you mentioned, Mercy Corps does operate in over 40 countries, but we felt that we needed to focus on a few countries initially. It takes a lot to get to understand the local context of a country. We wanted to invest in ways that could build on Mercy Corps' programmatic work. And in some countries, our focus is largely humanitarian relief or building, building better governance structures. And so where we were not doing market-based programming, we felt that we had less to add to social enterprises. And we just, as a small team, needed to, to stay focused on places where we knew the investment environment, we knew that there is a good ecosystem of support for entrepreneurs, we knew there are other investors active who could invest alongside of us or after us. And so that led us to a more narrow country focus early on. We started investing in East Africa, Kenya, Uganda, largely, in Colombia, and in Indonesia. And we've now really refocused our work to expand a bit in East Africa, to invest in a few additional countries. Over the last year, we've expanded into West Africa, and we're fairly open there in terms of geography. And we continue to invest in Colombia. So we're still not investing in a very large number of countries, but definitely more than when we started. But what we're also finding is that a lot of these very interesting early stage entrepreneurs, especially the ones that are enabled by technology such that they can scale and reach low income consumers, that many of them operate across countries and in some cases across continents. They may be based in one country, but their operations are in seven or eight countries and they have a view to expanding beyond that. And that's actually something where we feel Mercy Corps can be a value added investor. And we've done this with several of our companies in the past, companies that are operating in one market, but have an expansion plan into another market where Mercy Corps has a presence, where we can be really helpful in making introductions and providing knowledge about the local country context, really being a key advisor on that expansion. So we've made more investments in companies that operate in multiple countries and in multiple regions. That makes sense. And thank you also for stressing the importance of the network, the skills, the technical assistance that you guys are bringing. It's not just about the money for these entrepreneurs. It's also about access to these networks that you've mentioned are so useful to them. I wonder if you can talk about an investment that you have made or seen that surprised you and why. A couple of examples here. One, of course, as I mentioned, is climate adaptation. How do we help people become more resilient to a changing climate? And so we've made several investments now in microinsurance companies, companies that are trying to insure farmers or other vulnerable populations. And as climate changes, farmers in particular are at the front lines of climate change, and insurance is a way to mitigate the risk that they face and ensure more stability of incomes over time. So we've seen several good opportunities in microinsurance in the agricultural sector that are using technology and new approaches to be able to sell policies to small farmers. In one case, those policies are embedded in the purchase of agricultural inputs. So when a farmer buys a bag of seeds or a bag of fertilizer, it comes with insurance. So if the seeds don't germinate because of a lack of rains at planting time, the farmer can get a new bag of seeds. 
So it's finding novel ways to distribute these insurance policies to smallholder farmers. That's been a, a key approach. So we see some potential there. Another area, we made an investment two years ago in a startup called uh, Powered by People that works with handicraft organizations in emerging markets. And I think what surprised me as we looked into that investment opportunity is this creative manufacturing and handmade sector, how potentially impactful it could be. It's a sector that's dominated by women and by youth and by rural populations. It provides work for about 300 million people. So it's a huge economic sector. By one estimate, it generates $500 billion in revenues a year for the creative class. Uh, yet it's in a sector or an area that's many impact investors have overlooked or at a minimum just not put a lot of capital into. And, and that included us. We hadn't been looking at that sector as an opportunity around, say, youth employment and livelihood generation. And as we looked into it, we realized the, the huge potential impact of finding ways to support handicraft producers, to generate more income, to get them the financing that they need, to help them tap into the global markets, the demand internationally for creative, unique, artisanal products. And so that's been a really exciting investment to follow. It's helped us learn a lot more about that sector and the real potential for impact on populations that, that don't have many opportunities otherwise. In the third example I'll give you just briefly, as we've looked at this, I, I think it's easy to think about the impact that a company can have that directly serves consumers. It's easy to assess the direct impact that, that enterprises can have on individual consumers, but we've seen a need often for infrastructure that sits in the background or that works with businesses to enable them to achieve impact by reaching consumers. And so one area is logistics. Logistics is something that can deliver huge economic value. And as we see so many really interesting and innovative products developed, how do you help those products reach the last mile? How do you help them get to consumers in rural areas? And by the same token, how do you help rural producers, small farmers, others get their goods to market? Logistics and transport's often a big constraint. And so we have been pitched by a, a logistics company, a transport company in Colombia early on. And we had a long debate as a team about how impactful an investment like that would be, because it's really, it's providing that infrastructure that enables so much else to happen that could be impactful. But the act of transport itself doesn't necessarily deliver a direct impact. And going through that process of understanding the impact, we realized how valuable something like that can be. And so we've since made several investments in what I would consider more the, the infrastructure of delivering impact. And we see more opportunities there as well. It's always harder, takes you a little bit longer to explain the impact that it's going to have, but we believe it's just as impactful in many cases as investing in companies that deliver products directly to consumers. I think that's terrific. And we've learned from our work in the field that market access is a huge challenge for small entrepreneurs and that it, it does have a really significant impact on their ability to make their businesses grow. So if I were a donor or a philanthropist interested in Mercy Corps' work, why would I donate to the fund versus making a donation just to the NGO Mercy Corps? What are the benefits of one versus the other? So I wouldn't necessarily compare them and say it's a trade-off between one or the other. I mean, both are extremely important. We always say, look, first of all, we're providing not just capital, but other support. And an entrepreneur needs not just capital and support, but a supportive ecosystem. In an organization like Mercy Corps that's tackling 
you know, these really complex problems and challenges, our core work as a nonprofit is also really essential to solving these problems. So we've always said, look, our investment fund is in addition to what Mercy Corps does, it's a supplement to it. It by no way replaces what else we do. So for a philanthropist looking to make a donation, it's equally important to support the core work that an NGO does, as well as some investment work that the organization does. What we found is that our impact investment work can often bring in new donors who hadn't considered donating to Mercy Corps in the past, but they like this approach of supporting entrepreneurs or this approach of providing capital to businesses. And so it's another piece that might appeal to a different type of donor. We always think it's appealing in the sense that, as I explained before, entrepreneurs are a key part of the solution set. How do we better support them in addition to our work with governments and civil society organizations? So that's something that you get from donating to an impact investment approach is that ability to provide the right type of support to entrepreneurs. And the other piece of it is the a catalytic impact that you can have. As I mentioned, we always co-invest with others. Other investors are bringing capital to the table, but if we can help in some ways de-risk or unlock that follow-on capital, then we've had a catalytic impact on bringing more capital into a sector, into a business that's really solving a key problem. So when you look at the reach or the, the impact that a venture can have based on all the capital flowing into it, our contribution to that can look more significant. So it's that catalytic impact that we can have with our investment approach that I think is also appealing to donors. Excellent. Chris, if you could do one thing to increase the flow of finance reaching these impactful social entrepreneurs in emerging markets, what would it be? Better impact metrics. If you're just a regular commercial investor, you've got a set of metrics available to you around the financial performance of a company. You have accounting standards that define how those data points should be reported and collected. And so there are comparable metrics from a financial standpoint across companies. But if you want to start comparing investment opportunities based on the impact that a company can have, we're not quite as far along with those sorts of metrics. There are a few standardized metrics emerging for certain sectors, but we don't have quite the advancement in social and environmental impact metrics that we do in financial accounting metrics. There's a big push in that direction. There are a lot of great initiatives that are building pieces of that ecosystem, pieces of the infrastructure that are really promising. And we still have some work to do to get there. Accounting standards did not appear overnight. It took decades of work. And I think, you know, that if anything, creating a standardized set of impact metrics is even more challenging because of the various sectors and problems and challenges that we face as a world. But progress is being made. And I'm very excited to see even more progress made in that area because I do think that if investors who are not very well acquainted with a specific impact issue had a standard set of metrics that they could look at to compare across and see the progress being made in tackling these issues, see the progress that their investment in a company has made in addressing things like educational outcomes or health outcomes or a reduction in carbon emissions that lead to climate change. All of those things I think would unlock more capital for the impact sector. I'm glad you're so definite about it. And we're also tracking this closely. Thank you for the investments that you're making, because that contributes to the knowledge base around which these indicators will be built. So thank you so much, Chris, for being with us today and sharing your wide experience in government, private sector, and NGOs to grow the impact investment space. 
And thank you also to our audience for tuning in to UNCDF's podcast, Capital Musings. Once again, you can find us on Apple, Spotify, and our website, www.uncdf.org.